This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry discusses his book, American Whitelash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. He argues that moments of progress in race matters in the U.S. are often met with acts of violence. He's interviewed by Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism Dean Jelani Cobb. Welcome, uh, Mr. Lowry. I, I think I can call you Mr. Lowry. I've been calling you Wes all these years. <laughs> it's good to, to be with you uh, today, and I'm looking forward to talking uh, about the book. Um, you know, one thing that I think is usually a good starting place is that, uh, in my experience, a book doesn't come together, or the idea for a book doesn't uh, come all at once. Usually, it's like maybe disparate experiences or disparate bits of information uh, that, you know, gradually the themes uh, become, you know, more visible to you and you realize that, you know, there's a bigger subject uh, to be written about. Uh, So I wonder if you could give, before we get into the substance of how you did the book and so on, I wondered if you could give a kind of overview of how the idea for the book came to you. Of course. Well, I really appreciate it. Dean Cobb, uh, or, or Jelani, as I know you, the, you, you know, I, I think that when I think about this book and this project, you know, I go back to 2016 mm-hmm. when we saw the end of the first black presidency and the election of a candidate who had run an openly nativist campaign, uh, campaigning on a kind of racialized hostility and a play towards a white racialized grievance. And as a reporter, as a journalist who was covering issues of race and justice at that time, it was this question, I think all of us were grappling with this question of what is our role, what is our job amidst the Trump administration? And how does it change what our jobs were? And how does that change? How is it different from the Obama years? Not not in terms of the actual function, but just literally, what are the good story ideas? How should I write about this in this era as opposed to the last one? And as that, as that time began playing out, you know, the, the thing about journalism is that as, as events progress, uh, the story starts to lay itself out. And so we were seeing incident after incident of cases where uh, there had been these acts of clearly emboldened uh, white supremacists, and, and by that I mean avowed racists, not in a colloquial sense, but actual race warriors who mm-hmm. were committing attacks against all sorts of different types of people, and and who were empowered and who were recruiting and people who were being recruited because of the coarseness and the open bigotry of our mainstream politics and of our presidential administration. And so for me, initially, I just thought about, okay, as a journalist, how do I want to spend my time? What artifact do I want to leave behind from the Trump years? And it felt like, okay, part of this can be telling the stories of people who've been victimized that way. But then how do I contextualize that? And so it's impossible to look at the Trump years without also looking at the Obama years as well. And so suddenly, now I was looking at this kind of era of black advancement or the perception of black advancement and then the, the backlash to that or the pushback to that um, and then the need to place that in type of a bigger historical context as well because, of course, this is not the first or only time that we've seen this tug of war play out in our history. 
Sure. I wonder if you could talk about this. I mean, we can get into the bigger mm-hmm. um, historical currents in a minute, uh, but even just in a more microcosmic sense, uh, the you know backlash uh, and kind of boomerang uh, cycle that we've seen in our politics in the past decade. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk about about that uh, as it relates to the book. Sure. You know, and I think it's remarkable. I, I start the book thinking and meditating a little bit on election night in 2008 and this desire from a lot of our uh, institutions to, in recognizing the historic moment, to project a kind of post-racial reality, right? There was this desire for us to have closed the door. We have finally solved racism in America by electing a black guy. Um, What's actually interesting is that there have been studies that show, I know they've been done on gender, I'm not positive that they've been done on race, that they look at uh, countries, for example, that elect the first female prime minister. Sure. And what that shows is that, in fact, the expression, the naked expression of misogyny increases following the election of a woman. One, because now uh, their politics are genderized in this way. The way you critique the leader is via the ways that you would comment on gender. But secondarily, that you have people who now say, well, but I can't be a sexist because I voted for Right. And, and it provides a permission structure to, in fact, express prejudice. And so what we see is the election of a black president, the desire of people to suggest that uh, that we're now in some type of post-racial utopia, which then gives them a permission structure to express a bunch of racialized prejudices. You know, I think one of the most revealing statistics or data points is that by the end of the Obama administration, Polling shows that 55% of white Americans believe they are racially oppressed. They yeah. believe they face racialized right. discrimination. Right. Right. And, and that's a marked difference. It's a change, right? And so what we see is, the, is this playing out of a subsection of our, the majority of our country who that in the face of a, what is perceived as a clear step towards racial equality or racial equity, they see that as a net loss, as a deficit, and it makes them begin acting as a more anxiety-ridden, racially aggrieved set of people. Um, and so that it's unsurprising to see uh, the rise of this kind of explicit nativism in our politics. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about that, going back to the 2008 moment, which was that the uncomfortable reality, the thing that people didn't really want to talk about, um, was the fact that for uh, you know, these barrier-breaking leaders, uh, they often face you know severe headwinds you know of the type mm-hmm. that you you mentioned uh, in the United States you know you could have all sorts of comparisons that you could think of but uh, the fact that you know the president the United the country was led through the Second World War and through the Great Depression by a president you know who used a wheelchair mm-hmm. and yet uh, forty five years after his death it was still necessary to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, because the community that had been uh, so incredibly well represented, uh, even as uh, Franklin Roosevelt himself took great pains to, to obscure that from the public, uh, but the community that had uh, this sterling example uh, of their ability to, to lead and you know, to provide uh, service to the nation uh, in its most dire uh, moments, 
still was not fully uh, included in the society. <laughs> and so those two things can, can coexist in those ways. And, you know, for the, the nations that have had, uh, in plenty of instances, nations that have had female leaders that still have to grapple with entrenched uh, sexism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, directed at the population. And so it, it, it seemed like there was always maybe a naive starting place for that uh, that era. Of course. Well, and and beyond that, right, or, or, or to build on that, you know, I, I think a lot about what would be required to be elected as the first black president in the United States of America? What, what would it be required to get a majority white country to vote for you to become the president? And how that might preclude some of the things, whether it be dispositionally, ideologically, um, it, in terms of boldness, that would be required of providing the most full-throated political representation to black America. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that there are some of the things required of Barack Obama to get elected would preclude him doing some of the things that many of his supporters would want him to do mm-hmm. uh, beyond that. As you noted, the, the headwinds faced by such a president, I, I mean, people close to former President Obama note all the time how his relatively mild and frank handling of the Skip Gates incident in Cambridge. Sure. Uh, was the moment that they lost the support of white America indefinitely. You can see it in the polling, the the distrust numbers, that he never wins back for making a mild and and self-evident statement that the officer arresting a nationally renowned scholar on his own porch was kind of stupid, (laughs) right? Right. And and yet, this becomes a moment uh, that that forever uh, a significant chunk of white America decides we don't trust this guy. Uh, despite the fact that, again, in terms of his racial politics or his voiced racial politics, Barack Obama was a remarkably moderate figure who mm-hmm. went out of his way to say, I'm not a leader for black America. I'm a leader for all America, who, who was remarkably moderate on on issues like affirmative action or others. Right. In terms of what his stated positions were. And so I, I just think that it, it's very interesting to look at it and look at it through that lens um, that that there was this fear, there had been this fear that of of losing the country in some ways, right? This is obviously you can't look at the election of Obama without contextualizing it in what at that point had already been a decades long grapple and fight over immigration and the changing demographics of the country that you had for so many white Americans this feeling that this country has changed in fundamental ways that that are going to leave us to be the losers. And now you start to see the kind of vitriolic, both in a policy, but also an interpersonal response to that. Yeah, yeah. So just one last contextual question. It's certainly to, to your point about Obama that, you know, moderates have a way of looking like radicals uh, in the midst of reactionary times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I think it, no matter how moderate he was, the the reaction to his existence, you know, was so severe, which you talk about in the book. You know, the idea that uh, the main priority for the Republican Party was to ensure that he be a one-term president, um, you know, which... It's before he's enacted any policies, mm-hmm. you know, before he's actually done anything. Um, you know, but the, the last preface question uh, that I want to ask is, you, know, you and I met uh, in Ferguson uh, amidst the, 
you know, uproar and the the conflict and everything that was happening after, in the aftermath of Michael Brown's death. Um, you know, and Ferguson really became a shorthand uh, for mm-hmm. all the social tumult uh, that was going on at that time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, in, in a book that you wrote that comes out of that, you know, They Can't Kill Us All, uh, can you talk a little bit about how this book uh, relates to your prior one? Certainly. And, and I actually do see these books in conversation with each other in some ways. Um, and, I, and, imagine, and I imagine that, you know, where I work on another book, it, might, it would feel very different, that these mm-hmm. two feel like they're, that, that they have something to say to each other. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, they, they can't kill us all. And Ferguson, the rise of, you know, what's commonly known as Black Lives Matter as a protest movement in a new era of our long civil rights movement, in many ways grows out of and as a reaction and as a response to the Obama presidency, mm-hmm. right? That this is a movement of young people, many of whom uh, are mobilized into politics through the Obama candidacy, uh, who they're entering uh, public life at a time when the first black president is being is campaigning and then being elected and then governing. And they respond to their perceived and, and their correctly perceived limitations to that representation, right? I think all the time of Tef Poe, the activist in St. Louis, mm-hmm. saying, well, I voted for Barack Obama twice and Michael Brown's still dead, mm-hmm. right? This idea that even with a black president, there was still this limitation on, on the ability to actually claim the promise of an equal or an equitable society. And what that gives rise to is to a grassroots protest movement demanding uh, gains and achievements beyond what just the idea of having, as Rashad Robinson says, a black face in a high place could provide, right? And so what I think about in this context, though, right, and it's the old, you know, equal and opposite reaction, right, that as the Obama years and the Obama presidency are seeding and and breathing new life into a new era of our, of our civil rights movement, the, into our anti-racist movement, there has always been a white supremacist movement in this country, right? The anti-racist movement is a foil, not just to a status quo, but also to a movement of people who want things to remain that way. Um, and I think that, so what we see, and, and what I think about in this book, is this idea of the response and the reaction the rise of of people, of movements, who would play to these insecurities and these anxieties, and how that playing to it has a certain set of outcomes, right? What we know, and I think it's important to draw a distinction, right? The, when we talk about white supremacism, we're not talking about the 55% of white Americans, right? We're talking about the, we're talking about the the movement of people who are avowed race, or avowedly racist, who are eager to exploit those people, mm-hmm. who are laying in wait and hoping to proselytize, who are excited and happy about the idea of many white Americans googling you know black on white crime statistics or are immigrants bad or you know because they have set up their their information ecosystem to suck in such people and to indoctrinate them in these, these evil uh, uh, ideologies. And so, mm-hmm. I, I said, when I think about this book and I think about this work, 
in some ways it feels like the very natural um, next step in a chapter where to cover and cover the rise of a protest movement or demonstration movement is one thing, but now it makes sense to have to contextualize and understand that movement in the context and in relationship to its foe and its foil. Mm-hmm. So when you say white lash, you know, in the title, American white lash, what do you mean by that? So I think it's important first to start by defining and talking about the idea that, and I, and I think that very often we have these conversations and it goes unsaid, but I think there's probably some value in stating it, that, that race is not a biological reality. Mm-hmm. Right, we're talking about a social construction. Race is lived; it's experienced, but it's not actually true that we are different races of human. Right, mm-hmm. and and so when we talk about white people, white lash, white supremacy, we're, we're talking about people who are societally coded in that way. Because mm-hmm. um, what we also know is that those distinctions are malleable over time. Yeah, sure, they've changed a lot in the course of the twentieth century. Correct. Right, and and, and will continue to change. Frankly. Uh, through this demographic change, as we have more people who are showing up from Central and South America, many of whom would self-identify as white. Sure. Um, you know, and so, but I say that to say that if our country was founded on an explicitly white supremacist system in that people who were coded under law as white had claim to the full promise of American freedom, while people who were coded as black did not have claim to that promise, which is just the fact. It's how we were founded is what it looked like. The, that, that system is a white supremacist system. It's a system that prioritizes and places above others people who are coded as white. We've seen steps over our history to undo that and to create a multiracial democracy. We've, and those steps date back to the revolts of enslaved people. They date to the abolitionist movement the Civil War, Emancipation and Reconstruction. They date to the Civil Rights Movement in the 50s and 60s. Um, and they date to the steps towards the election of a black president. In each of those incidents, what we see is that as people fight to upend a white supremacist status quo, those who are the beneficiaries of that status quo lash out violently in, in defense of a system for which they are the beneficiaries. And so what we see is that following uh, the revolts of enslaved people, we see massive acts of violence in both interpersonal and in, in terms of policy, the cutting down on the ability of enslaved people to have access to reading or to education, their freedom of movement. Um, in some cases, quotas on how many new enslaved could be brought to a given colony to make sure that they would not lose an upper hand in terms of maintaining the populations. We see the violence and the backlash to the, the radical Republicans in the South and the overthrow of multiracial democracy as it was established in Reconstruction, we see the, the violent crackdowns of civil rights and civil liberties of black Americans following uh, the civil rights era and the civil rights movement. And we see the rise of these white supremacist groups, whether it be the skinheads, whether it be uh, the militia groups, whether it be what we called the alt-right for a while. Right, This idea that when white supremacists when white supremacy is threatened people lash out in its defense and in those moments i think those moments are best understood as a white lash mm-hmm. so I, I wonder um because that's a kind of grim prognosis yes uh, i wonder what you got from 
your time reporting uh, about the mechanics, be they societal or the mechanics of individual psychology, uh, about how that process works and what really seems to be the driving force uh, in this recurrent theme of of violence, particularly violence in uh, reaction to perceived black progress? I think that there is a very, I think the driving force in many ways is a very base human prejudice. And what I mean by that is all of us think and worry about a scarcity of resources. Is there enough to go around? Are we safe? Are we healthy? Am I going to have a job? Are my, is my family, my children, my offspring, are they going to have access to the resources they need to get ahead, to survive, to thrive? And that what we see in these moments um, are the, the fears of people who are different than us and the idea that perhaps there is a rebalancing of the scale in a way. And in that rebalancing, will I and my people and my tribe, will we end up the losers of history in some way? And, and then what we see is the people who would preach race as a biological reality playing to those anxieties um, and, and ramping them up. Uh, we, see, we see rhetoric, whether it be through the institution of media, whether it be wielded by politicians that seek to demonize and dehumanize those, those folks who are coming in who are different. And the result is a, a lashing out. You know, I, I, one of the things that when I was researching this book, what I was really struck by uh, was a sociologist Gordon Alpert's study mm-hmm. uh, the nature of prejudice and, mm-hmm. and, and tracking how how does a, a interpersonal prejudice which we all possess we walk down the street and we decide okay do we think that person's attractive or not attractive they look friendly do they look mean all these things are prejudicial in that we haven't done any objective analysis of this person to figure out what we think of them right that it's it's vibes it's our feeling but what takes a, a, an internalized prejudice and, and what metastasizes it into an actual act of violence? And he charts the course and how public rhetoric and public discussion can, can accelerate that process. That, okay, I, I, might, you know, I might live in a neighborhood where a new set of immigrants has shown up, a new set of refugees has shown up, people who look or feel different, people of a new religion. And I may initially just be skeptical of them in a way that is natural and human because I I don't have experience with them. But when suddenly our public square and our public discourse, I begin seeing those internalized prejudices reflected back to me. It provides a permission structure. It provides me permission to segregate myself from them, to stay away, to not integrate, to not not connect. Uh, From there, it it develops into uh, a permission to actively discriminate against them. Right. And then from there to take steps of, of violence, whether they be interpersonal and eventually societal. Right. And and so what we see in these moments are populations that understandably populations that understandably feel a base prejudice about the way the society of the world is changing. But when those prejudices are reinforced and reflected back to them, it's how we start getting to these moments of discrimination and of true violence. Mm. You know, we've been talking a lot about race in a, in a kind of binary sense of black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, of course, you know, more complicated than that. And so 
I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the immigration um, angle of this, and, and specifically about uh, the death of Marcelo Lucero, mm-hmm. uh, who you write about in, in extensively in the book, and how that fits into the bigger narrative that you're talking about here. Of course. So Marcelo Lucero was an Ecuadorian immigrant who was killed in Patchogue, New York, which is in Long Island, just days after Barack Obama was elected. And he was killed in an environment in which local elected officials, in response to the demographic change in this area, had begun scapegoating, uh, demonizing and dehumanizing immigrants and immigrant laborers. That the immigrants became the, the people who were blamed for a collection of, of problems and, and policy issues. People were concerned that their housing value was going to fall, which in a time during the economic downturn was a major, major concern for people who had invested years of their lives into achieving this kind of suburbanized life. We, we saw concerns about the schools and, and was English as a second language pulling money away from the football team or the lacrosse team, right? That suddenly any problem could be blamed on, on a wave of immigrants. And, and this dehumanization had gotten so deep, had, had so ingratiated itself into the culture of this community that groups of high schoolers were going out each weekend looking for immigrants to beat up. That was how they were passing mm-hmm. the time. That was the fun they were having, right? It, it speaks to, uh, again, it, and it's almost too obvious to say, right, but when we dehumanize people or dehumanize a group of people, people stop viewing them as humans and therefore stop treating them as humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that suddenly these are, these are playthings to be harassed, to be harmed, to be assaulted. And so Marcelo Lucero, who's walking home one day, uh, one night, is accosted um, and, and attacked and stabbed uh, by a group of teenagers and loses his life. Now, in this case, it, we, it ends up going to trial. Now, there ends up being a conviction. But so much of the trial itself turned on this question of whether it was whether or not it was okay to describe his killer as having been racist or racially motivated was this a hate crime or was it not right this was a young man who had gone out with the express purpose of assaulting immigrants has murdered an immigrant and we are having a public debate about whether or not it's okay to describe that as racialized animus and I think it speaks sometimes to the failures and the limitations of our public discourse here, because we, are, we have literally taken someone who's committed a racist murder and we are arguing that they, are, that they do not meet the standard uh, of what is racist, of what is white supremacist, of what is a backlash in this way. And, and if such a person does not, well, then who does? Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder, um, you know, you've been covering these stories uh, for a long time. I've been covering these stories uh, for a long time. Um, you know, let's say a hypothetical critic will say, okay, these people did terrible things. They don't represent me. Uh, they don't represent, you know, the community where I live or the friends that I associate with. Uh, is it wrong to chronicle these people as a barometer uh, for where we're headed in particular ways, or does that skew uh, our sense of where we are in terms of our racial and, and ethnic tolerance in the country? I think that what we have to think about is that it takes a very small portion or percentage of people 
to imperil the freedoms of fellow Americans and fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't actually require a significant portion of white Americans to lash out violently, to chill and to curtail the freedoms of immigrants, of black Americans, of Muslims, of whomever. That it takes Dylan Roof, one person, to, uh, to massacre people in Charleston and to chill and scare black Americans across the country. And, referring to the 2015 uh, mass shooting at the Emmanuel Amy Church. In Charleston, exactly. Mm-hmm. That, that, in fact, we live our lives based on interactions which are small portions of the populace, right? And that it does not take a critical mass or even a majority to fundamentally change the experience of someone's life. And, and so I think that we have to be willing. But I think beyond that, though, I think one of the reasons it's important to look at these cases that are understandably and by design outliers is because we all want to and agree, or at least the vast majority of us agree, that we do not want such people in such cases. The, that there, there is large agreement across our political spectrum, across our populace, that what happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue, the mass shooting there, or what happened in, in El Paso, in Pittsburgh, uh, yeah, in Pittsburgh the, yeah, mm-hmm. or in El Paso, the, the, the Walmart, the killing of Hispanic uh, uh, people there, people don't want that to happen, right? Mm-hmm. I, I believe, no matter who the politician is, no matter what their politics are, I, I believe them when they, when they say that this is terrible and a massacre, right? And so if we have a agreed upon outcome, which is to have such things not happen, the only way to decode how to prevent it is by actually looking and focusing on those things and reverse engineering our solutions from there. The problem is if we're when we focus on those things, it leads us to solutions that people may not like so much. It means that well, if we do not want immigrants being slaughtered or being targeted, that might change the way we deploy rhetoric about immigrants and refugees. And that, that, that suddenly requires something of us that may not be advantageous to our political program, to our chances of being re- reelected, to our ability to attack our political foes, X, Y, and Z, right? That it's a lot easier to look at all these things in a vacuum. Of course, I hate anti-immigrant violence, but no, I get to say whatever I want about immigrants, right? Because my speech can't be linked to this and X, Y, and Z. And what I would suggest is we've got a greater responsibility than that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm aware that I'm the dean of a journalism school uh, <laughs> and that some of my students may watch this. Uh, and so I have to ask you a few process questions. Of course. Uh, you know, talk to me about how you reported this, uh, this book. And, you know, what was your approach to uh, the stories that you highlight, you know, and, 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 you know, logistically kind of walking through the work of, of creating the book itself? So when I first started, I was thinking primarily about the Trump years. Um, and that presented a challenge, if only because they were still playing out. It was a story that was still happening. It was a story I was still covering day in and day out. And as I began thinking about this and having conversations with folks, I... I really started focusing on the Obama years as well, in part, again, because I don't believe we can understand the Trump years without understanding the Obama years. And from there, I began looking at these different types of cases. One thing I thought was important was 
flattening and having a conversation about all of the different types of people who are targeted by white supremacists. And what I mean by that is that we, I certainly believe it's important for us to understand the rich, textured, individualized history of, say, anti-blackness in America or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or xenophobia, right? But in this moment, there is a true through line between many of the horrific acts of violence we're seeing targeting one group or targeting the other. You know, we've referred to Tree of Life a few times in Pittsburgh. Um, the, the attacker in that case was just sentenced very recently, and, and he noted that he targeted that synagogue because he believed that they were helping resettle refugees, right. Right? right? And so while it is unquestionably an act of anti-Semitism, it is also an act of anti-immigrant violence and, and xenophobia, right? And so to only understand it as the one would be to m- be missing the bigger context. Yeah, just as a, as a quick aside, you know, when you look at the uh, 1955 bombing mm. of the Hebrew Benevolent Congregation in Atlanta, uh, you know, that's done as an act of anti-Semitism, uh, but also as meant as a warning uh, because they perceived the people of that congregation for, to be of being uh, too sympathetic toward the nascent civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was both of those things, it was both uh, anti-Semitic uh, and anti-black, uh, and kind of braided into a toxic hole. Uh, and so it's not uncommon, I think, you know, to see the thing that you're talking about, uh, where these kinds of social prejudices uh, amplify each other. Exactly. And, and I think it's important to try to understand that because, again, if our goal and our aim is to understand and inform so that we can do something, we do have to develop some expertise in the way that these people are thinking and operating um, so, so that we can work together on, on, on finding a solution and a remedy. So from there, I begin thinking about, OK, what are different cases that fit both in terms of a chronological? You know, how do I tell the story of an era, which means I got to move through time? But then also, how do I make sure that I'm not so rooted in one that I'm missing the details of another? How do I contextualize this both in a sweeping history, but then also in a, in a modern era history? Uh, but beyond all of that, how do I make sure, going back to what in a lot of ways was, was really the underlying push of why I wanted to work on this, was how do I make sure that I'm chronicling and telling the stories of the real people who are victimized in this era? whose lives were forever changed, that we can talk about these ideas in these abstract, like, conceptual ways. But let's go into the living room of the brother of the man who was murdered, and let's sit there, and let's sit with the stakes of this. Because I think that is what matters, and that is what what is important, and I think that's what empowers us to then potentially figure out ways to to resolve all this. Mm-hmm. I think that you know that points to you know something else I was curious about, which is uh, you know what were the most difficult aspects uh, of this. Mm-hmm. I imagine that in reporting a story like this, uh, there's a certain amount of emotional difficulty uh, that you have to prepare yourself for. But I'm I'm curious about how you'd answer uh, both whether it be emo- emotional, logistical, practical. Uh, you know, journalistic, you know, what were the most challenging aspects of doing this project? I definitely think that's true. You know, someone who's, as someone who's covered a lot of police violence or a lot of stories of people who have been killed, not just by the police, but frankly, even just in homicides, right, and street crime, there's a deep amount of pain there and trauma and frustration. But in my experience, there's something that's even different about people whose loved ones are 
are specifically targeted for something so immutable to their being. Mm-hmm. The that wait a second, my son was killed because someone set out to massacre Jews. My my daughter was killed because someone set out to attack Muslims. Right. There's something that, in my, and again, in my experience, and I, and I don't want to make a universal statement, but in my experience, there's been something about those interviews and, and that interaction that has a different level of emotional tax that is a little different. I think what's also true is that this is a big space. It's a space that has been written about and thought about. It's a space that is an ongoing battlefield for a lot of our public conversation. And so part of what was difficult for me also was thinking about what is the scope and what is the scale. There were a bunch of different ways you could do such a book um, and how much history, how much of it is about interpersonal violence versus how much of it is about systems and structural violence, how much of it. And, and I think that there are, like I said, I certainly think there's some other subjective decisions I could have made about how to do it. But for me, again, trying to root this story uh, and and this project in the stories of these people i tried to really start micro and then just pull and pull the string who was mm-hmm. the person how were they indoctrinated what's the background of that thing and 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 let the story kind of unspool itself understanding that it therefore would not and could not be encyclopedic mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, there's the old um, lesson that you, you probably learned when you were starting out, too, uh, about journalism, which is that uh, a complex story should be told simply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think, you know, kind of getting at uh, these huge currents uh, by talking about the brother of someone who was killed and sitting in their living room uh, is exactly how we prescribe kind of getting at that, uh, something so uh, incredibly you know, convoluted and, and complicated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I just think that that, beyond that, though, I think that there at times there's a hyper-focus and almost a weird fetishization of the attackers in these cases. And I don't, sure. And I don't even mm-hmm. mean this as like a media criticism, really. I just mean like even in our public imagination, right? The idea of these Nazis and the skinheads and this and that and... Right. And, and part of me just wanted to invert that, wanted the characters to be not the Richard Spencers, but the Heather Hires. Right. Or mm-hmm. or the Z. Bryant's, the young black woman who writes the initial. This is this is a reference to Charlottesville in Charlottesville, Virginia, where there was the Unite the Right rally in 2017, where where what we see. And I thought this was fascinating to me. Right. That one of the moments that is most identified in our public knowledge as a, as white supremacist violence a violent-turned-homicidal uh, event hosted by white supremacists is sparked by a young black woman's act of anti-racist activism, which she writes an essay for school and then later sends us a letter to the editor suggesting the Confederate monuments come down. Mm-hmm. And the result ends up being that the nation's white supremacists show up and murder someone, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That, that there's, a, there, there's a disturbing, uh, like butterfly effect to this that even such a relatively small act of resistance and anti-racist activism by a teenager results in such an overwhelmingly violent response 
from white supremacists in many ways I felt actually illustrated a lot of what we were talking about. Sure. Um, you know, the other thing that I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, what you learned, uh, because you have covered these subjects for such a long time, you know, what, if anything, you learned in the course of this reporting uh, and whether any of it surprised you? You know, I, I think the part of what was surprising to me was just how united so many of these different subsections or or different denominations of American white supremacists, how united they are in their core ideology, how relatively similar. I actually think in in the press very often we perhaps over-focus on the delineations What's the difference between the alt-right versus a militia group versus a Christian identity? And and I'm not suggesting that doesn't matter and those distinctions don't matter. But what is interesting is how when you zoom outward, these are the exact same people. They believe the exact same things. That for all of the ink spilled over this new rise in white supremacists and they're wearing bow ties and this and that, these are old school Klansmen in their beliefs. Right, that it's just a rebrand, mm-hmm. and, and I actually I feel like maybe I knew that intuitively, but to actually go through a, a more rigorous process of diving into their beliefs and looking at it, you know, I think I was also, you know, I think I was also struck by the kind of tactical forethought a lot of these movements have put in, you know, sure. that. You go back to the 80s and there's a white supremacist leader, Lewis Beam, who writes about this concept of leaderless resistance, which is something that is a terminology that's been adapted by civil rights activists. This this concept of we will not going to we're not going to be in this hierarchical process where they could just they can infiltrate one group or they can assassinate one leader. But rather, we're going to try to proselytize to the masses and to spark up all these different points of resistance and to see you know, the organized white supremacist of the 80s writing this stuff down in tracks and then watching that play out with Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City and then watching it play out with Dylan Roof. And it's it's actually I mean, it's truly the embodiment of what they hoped would come. Well, also, uh, you know, there's there's a kind of logistical and practical knowledge mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, I won't go through the list, you know, but uh, when you looked at. Uh, the attack on the Topps supermarket in Buffalo last year, uh, and you looked at the Dylan Roof attack in Charleston in 2015, uh, there were practical and forensic things that overlapped. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so not only are they kind of following this source of inspiration, uh, but they're learning from each other uh, and, you know, kind of almost crowdsourcing, you know, the information about how to uh, continue to act to commit these these uh, heinous acts. Well, and I think one thing we have to remember, and I didn't go into this too deeply in the book, but I think it's fascinating, right, is that this generation of white supremacists come after a set of, of post-civil rights white supremacists who did all exist in these hierarchical groups. They had more formation. And, and what we saw was that we had civil rights groups like the SBLC 
who who systematically went in and sued these groups out of existence, mm-hmm. right? That they said, okay, well, someone was murdered. We're suing you in civil court for $50 million. And they could bankrupt a local clan or a bigger group. They could seize the land. They could, the FBI could infiltrate. And so what we see happening in this generation of attackers, and this begins with McVeigh and, and, and Sense, is that whether it is true or not, they insist in their manifestos, I'm not a part of any group. This right. was all me. In part because what it does is it insulates their brethren from the ability to be held accountable. Right. Right. That, no, 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 I'm not the member of anything. You cannot argue that anyone influenced me. And they explicitly write it down in these things, which means that they take completely on themselves the, the legal culpability, which then destroys the ability for attorneys, for the Justice Department, for civil rights groups to come in and hold the movement at large responsible. Sure. Sure. Um, and and so I think that you know in looking at you know these stories and certainly in reading your um, your book as well, uh, it, it had a couple of effects. One is that you, at this point we almost take for granted, you know, and in our worst circumstances we do take for granted the advances that have been made over the past century, but particularly uh, in the civil rights movement. And when you distill this down, you see exactly what people were up against mm-hmm. uh, and you know how incredible their achievements were uh, in light of that. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and I thought about this in, in reading the section uh, on uh, the murders in Kansas City, um, was that... There is a commonality uh, in which, you know, there are people who are killed as an expression of, you know, a particular kind of uh, bigotry. Uh, But the people who who are killed don't have any connection. They don't belong to the group uh, that is being targeted. Uh, And so that's the case in Kansas City. That's the case uh, with the Sikh temple in Wisconsin. Uh, in which people you know, sometimes make no distinction between Sikhs uh, and Muslims. Uh, that was the situation uh, when the Holocaust Museum in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. was attacked some years back, uh, and the person who died there was an African-American um, security person. Uh, and so it really does seem uh, to reemphasize the idea you know, that, that Martin Luther King articulated uh, that if I can, you know, paraphrase that that none of us are safe until all of us are safe. You know, mm-hmm. uh, none of us are free until all of us are free, and that uh, the kind of bigotry that can be directed at one group uh, will extend almost assuredly will extend to victimize people beyond that group. One hundred percent, and beyond that, because what we also know is that these group distinctions are malleable, they change, they shift, sure. they move, right? Mm-hmm. To really hate immigrants in 1920 means something very different than to really hate immigrants today. <laughs> um, and you can use the same terminology, you can believe in the same policy remedies, you can, you can preach the same. It, it, you actually are targeting your vitriol at a completely different set of humans. And in fact, you may be a person who was in the group previously. <laughs> and so I, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's, it's that are we going to be a nation for all? And are the promises of freedom, of equality, are those promises that are actually universal, regardless of these types of demographic distinctions? Or are they something that's being held for a certain subsection of people who we deem American and, and withheld from everyone else? And, and I think that 
we can't pick and choose. We can't have it some of the way. Either everyone's free or no one's free. Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, there's just one other thing. I, want to, I want to go back for a little while to the time we have remaining uh, to talk uh, some more about immigration. You talk about the 1965 Immigration Act uh, and you know the the context of you know the very vitriolic uh, debate and and um, discourse on immigration in in the country. Can you give a sense of how we got here? Uh, you know, from that point to where we are now. Of course, you know I, I think that there is a when we look at the way immigration has worked over our our history, I mean, it truly is one of, if not the central issue in debating who is an American, who cannot be an American. And, and, and what we see is, um, and, and by the way, it has been central historically to a white nativist and white nationalist uh, movements that people forget that when the Klan was at its strongest in the 1920s, when it owned senators and governors, they, had, they passed one major policy that was the, the Immigration Act of 1925. Right. right. They restricted who could come into the country, how they would come in, and they created a quota system for that. What we see uh, is that in the 60s, we, we have a pivot, a change in the way immigration works, and, and, we, and we get rid of such systems, allowing more people from more parts of the country the ability to enter into our country. And so what we start to see is a massive shift demographically in who is here and who is allowed in. That, that is then increased by the uh, dysfunction and chaos very often in several Central and South American countries that drive masses of people towards the promise of American freedom. And so very rapidly, we see amounts of immigration in the United States of America that really do not have historical precedent in our country's history. Uh, not that they don't have precedent anywhere, but we have seen people showing up and changing the makeup of the country faster, more rapidly in these recent decades than we had seen ever before. And, and that necessarily spikes that tension, that frustration, those interactions, right? I remember I was interviewing Trevor Noah once. We were talking about the differences between the United States and South, and South uh, Africa. And I remember him talking about, he goes, all these places we talk about melting pots and people forget like, to have a melting pot, you have to have a fire underneath you, <laughs> right? That, like melting is not a pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and, the, and so that when you think about it, right, integration, is a fundamentally tension-filled experience. You're taking people who are different and putting them in the same place and telling them to do a shared thing. And, and so what we've seen is a massive change in, in who occupies our country and the subsequent response and reaction to that. Um, what's been remarkable has been that we have conversations now about how we remedy parts of our immigration system that do not work, that, that, that don't function, whether it be our asylum system, the ability to enter the country or not. And, and so little of the conversation very often is actually about solving the problem, but rather is much more about an expression of anxiety and frustration about the change, right? That there's actually very little uh, utility in building a wall on the southern border. will not solve the problem. Right. 
but it's an it's politically is politically uh, very valuable, at least Correct. in certain contexts. But you know, it doesn't actually address the problem because it's an expression, right? In the same way that we've seen a, uh, you know, the governor of Florida recently came out and said he would get rid of birthright citizenship, a thing that would not solve any of these problems, but speaks. And, and, and which is also a thing which is also a product of the Civil War <laughs> and the attempt to, to enshrine citizenship for the newly emancipated uh, enslaved black people, formerly enslaved black people. So, so, what we're, so what we're seeing is major politicians, people who could become the president of the United States, proposing to undo the constitutional amendment that codified the citizenship of black Americans. Right. Because... They are so anxious and upset, or not, not even to speak to them personally, they believe the people whose votes they are seeking will respond to such an appeal uh, about the changing demographics of the country to say, well, well, we'll tell people that if they show up here, their kids will not be American citizens as a means, again, of protecting what I would call an American whiteness, this idea of who is really an American versus who is not. You know, there's an interesting... Uh, biographical note here, uh, which is that uh, the 1965 Immigration uh, Act, which greatly liberalized uh, immigration policy in the United States, uh, when you go back and read Lyndon B. Johnson's rhetoric around that, uh, he downplayed it. You know, of course, this was tremendously controversial uh, in Congress at the time, and one of the things that it did. Uh, was upend the old racist uh, quota system that you mm-hmm. talked about that came from the, the Johnson Act uh, in, in 1924. So, you know, this is meant to be something that makes uh, the society, at least on its face, more democratic and more in line with its ideals. Lyndon B. Johnson says it's not going to make much difference at all. Uh, and, you know, I remain curious about whether that was just uh, him speaking politically uh, or if he really believed that. Because, of course... It radically changed uh, immigration and in uh, route to changing the demography of the United States. One of the first places where those changes became apparent uh, was Queens, New York, you know, where I happened to have grown up. Uh, Queens uh, is now uh, the most statistically the most diverse county in the United States. Uh, prior to the Immigration Act, it was the second whitest portion of New York City. Uh, And over time, you've seen a huge influx of people from a variety of places around the world. It's really not a coincidence, and and that change happened very quickly. It's really not a coincidence that the most nativist politics that we've seen uh, and the politics of the prior presidential administration, which you make note of, are connected to a political candidate who was born and raised in Queens, New York. That's Donald Trump. Well, and and you have Queens, New York. You also have uh, many of these figures, including the now deposed Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, who hail from San Diego, yeah. a place that was among the first yeah. to see the massive demographic change around Hispanic American immigration. And, and so that they were dealing with this and grappling with this in the 80s. Um, in a way that much of the country was not grappling with until the, the late 90s and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, all of that is very unsurprising. I think it's also interesting when we think about immigration, and, and that brings us to a really fascinating point when we think about places like Queens, is I think sometimes we forget how many immigrants are black. Sure. 
that, that when we talk about the changes since the 60s and who occupies the country, the spaces you and I sit in, there's a lot of conversation and debate about the difference between uh, descendants of slaves and the, and the children of African immigrants. Sure. Most of those African immigrants have arrived post-65. Right. Right? The, the changing of the country to be a more immigrant country is not just Hispanic-American immigration. Right, that in many cases, you're talking about black American immigration, Asian American immigration, uh, that so much so when we looked at the, the Muslim ban and, and the, the steps that were taken to keep many uh, people from many Muslim countries out of, out of the United States as part of the Trump administration, that many of the people impacted by that were black Americans, not right. people who we would codify or think of as Arab Americans, right? Exactly. And and one of the things, I know we're running you know, down to our last minutes here. One of the things I wanted to make sure I got to is that this is a you know, very heavy, very weighty subject. Uh, but with the minute we have left, I wonder if you could talk about uh, anything that you are hopeful or idealistic about and uh, where you, we may see some sign of progress. I think that any time we see these moments, uh, because it's a, I use the, the, the analogy of a tug of war, and, and any time we see the tug of war from the white supremacist forces, we do see a rise of anti-racist forces to pull back, right? That, it, it, that what we see is the rise of people claiming the mantle of multiracial democracy and demanding uh, the renewal of it, uh, that out of the horrendous lynching of Emmett Till rises the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and so that in moments, you know, and so I don't like to be rosy-eyed about it, but in moments of, of this backlash, what we do see is new generations of people rising to meet the call. And so I, I think that's important, and I, and I think that, and you know this, um, one of the reasons we insist upon an accurate understanding of not just our history, but of our contemporary realities is from the belief that we that, that if powered and empowered by that accurate understanding, we can change things. Uh, that we write things down and rec- record them so that they can be addressed. And so in, in covering and, and writing about these forces that are dark, that are evil, that are difficult, the aim is not to say that things are irreconcilably broken and there's nothing we can do and the country's irredeemable. It's in fact premised in the idea that there is the ability for redemption, but that redemption requires direct acknowledgement of reality. Mm. Well, um, you know, thank you. On that note, we'll have to conclude. And, uh, you know, I'm very much appreciative of the early opportunity I had to read American White Lash. Uh, and uh, congratulations on publication. Thank you so much, Nalani. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 